Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctors in Podcast. I'm Dr. Nadia Saba, and this is our special series, What Plants Crave, where we're talking to indoor and greenhouse growers about the plants they grow and how they got to where they are now. Today's guest is Christine De Jesus, Director of Cultivation at Galenas Cannabis in Akron, Ohio. Christine is a laser-focused cultivator um, on sustainable farming practices, both indoors and outdoors. At Galenas, she implements and oversees cultivation practices that make indoor cannabis production more sustainable, efficient, and low impact on earth and the environment. Before growing indoor cannabis at Galenas, Christine worked as farm manager at Pint Size Farm in Ohio for 14 years, where she employed sustainable and regenerative farming practices to grow various vegetables, fruits, herbs, and hops used to brew beer. She's also been a horticulture instructor at the Cleveland School of Cannabis, the only brick and mortar cannabis school east of the Mississippi. Christine, it is so great to have you as a guest on our podcast and really excited to learn more about you and about what it takes to grow indoor cannabis sustainably. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. Of course, I'm a huge fangirl of all of your work myself. So being such an industry giant and leader in all things HVAC and indoor agriculture, I've greatly admired all the work that you've been doing and all the content that you share with us, which is amazing and extremely helpful. So thanks for having me. And I'm excited to talk about growing cannabis. Awesome. All right. Well, let's start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now as Director of Cultivation at Galenas. Absolutely. So I studied actually English in college and was I got an MFA in creative writing at the University of Pittsburgh, which was a great learning experience. And then I kind of quickly transitioned out of academia <laughs> because there wasn't a whole lot <laughs> to do there at the time for me personally. And I moved into working for a brewery. So I started working for Great Lakes Brewing Company, who pretty much anchored the brewery district up here in Ohio, one of the first microbrews in the country. And after working for them on the restaurant side for a while, I decided to start a farm for them. And that's how I started Pine Size Farm, which was a very small polyculture farm that um, grew about 30 or 40 different vegetable crops, hops, um, all the pumpkins for the pumpkin ale, some various culinary herbs, and some fruit. And then that was my first real exposure to, you know, full-scale agriculture, although it was very small and I was doing all the production myself for the most part with the help of just a few people. And so that was a very good learning experience to be able to grow so many different crops at the same time. And I also was getting, I I was an organic gardener prior to that. So I was able to launch into like kind of more regenerative style growing methods. And I continued then to grow for them for 14 years before I transitioned to cannabis. Um, I'd always been a cannabis advocate and I've worked on several campaigns to legalize cannabis here in Ohio. The kind of most high profile position I had was with Marijuana Policy Project as their regional coordinator for their 2016 campaign to legalize medical marijuana in Ohio. That campaign evolved into the policy that we have now, which is our House Bill 523, which finally legalized medical marijuana in Ohio. So I've had a kind of a long-term plan to hope to transition into cannabis agriculture, 
But the most important component of that for me was to be able to grow in soil and to grow organically. So since Ohio did not allow outdoor production, that made my choices much more limited. But I was able to finally enter into the cannabis industry in 2019. And I've been with Galenus, which is a organic third-party certified living soil is like the kind of cannabis version of the term grow here in Akron, Ohio, and it's been an amazing experience. So I've been director of cultivation here now for four years. You have worn many hats. Each, everything you just said could be a podcast episode in <laughs> and of itself, I feel like. Um, and, you know, we'll touch probably on on several of them. Of course, I want to focus today on what you're doing at Galenus. But, I, you know, just out of curiosity, I mean, you, you went from having a creative arts degree to working at a brewery like what drew you to the brewery yeah so really it was more you know the necessary situation I had a young child at the time and working you know teaching wasn't really going to provide the kind of income that I needed Mm. at the time of course there's a long it's a long game (laughs) in education but um so I I had already been working in restaurants just literally as like a server and bartender And that was something that I was able to make a lot of money and still spend a lot of quality time with raising my daughter, obviously. And when I, I'd worked at a couple different restaurants and like live music clubs. And then I had an opportunity to start working at Great Lakes Brewing Company. And what drew me to the microbrewery scene was that it it was bigger than just a restaurant. You know, obviously it was a restaurant attached to a very pretty large scale craft brewery. And also, um, it was the craft focus that I was interested in. Mm. So being kind of on the front end of the craft brewery evolution was just a super interesting time because it was a new model. It was kind of breaking the mold of how um, beer was produced. And it also was very organic in the way it evolved. There was much more to it, more... um, more employee engagement, more sustainability, and more craft, you know, so. What do you mean was, by craft? What does that like, mean? It was, a, it was an artisan product, you know, it was, it was something that people were investing more in better ingredients and better quality instead of okay. trying to just mass produce the same thing. Got and it. so that, was, that, that appealed to, you know, the connoisseur side in me. And craft cannabis is very similar in many ways. You know, like what I'm doing here has a lot of similarities to what they're doing in the craft brewery industry. And even the models kind of parallel where now there's a lot of um, mass producers that are having, you know, the the similar effect on the craft producers that the mass producers in in the alcohol industry have. So it it was just an interesting experience for me to be able to see a business growing, which Great Lakes Brewery opened in 1988. So it went from a very small scale brewery to a very, very large scale one, one of the top uh, craft brews in the country right now, as far as volume. And to be in on the front, kind of the front end of that and see how all that evolved was just very interesting to me at the time. That is interesting. I mean, having been there kind of from the ground up or, you know, seeing it grow as it did, and then you, you know, you. I guess you left to, to start Pint Size Farm. Is that something that you? Do you? Is it possible to continue 
being an artisan or a craft in whether it's brewing beer or whether it's craft, you know, cultivation of cannabis, can, can you still be an artisan or a craft grower at a large scale? Or do you real, are you really that moving away from that if you have to grow at large volume? Um, you know, that's, that's a really interesting question because that's the dynamic that we all feel the push and pull from being in, on the craft side of things is how do you retain that artisan approach? How do you retain that individual, <clears throat> excuse me, individual attention to each plant or each product and yet scale up to become, you know, financially stable, I guess. Right, right. Good word, no. So there's always a push and pull there, but yes, I think you can. And I think as far as craft cannabis goes, as well as craft beer, there is always going to be a place for it because there is a lot of differences between the production models, the ingredients, the final product, the quality control, all of those things become yeah. very hard to maintain when you really ramp up scale. Yeah. And just to clarify too, so Pint Size Farm was a dedicated farm specifically for Great Lakes Brewing Company. Oh, cool. So I cool. was technically employed by Got Great it. Lakes Brewing Company during that time. Um, I did end up like kind of being more of a contractor in a way, but I only grew food for Great Lakes Brewing Company. So I didn't okay. sell it. Got it. I didn't, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful model, actually, because I didn't have to do all those things that small farmers do, meaning going to farmers markets, traveling to many different restaurants, doing all sort of deliveries. I luckily had one buyer, and that was the brewery. And they even would buy everything that I grew regardless of the quantities. So that's another real challenge that oh. small farmers face is sometimes they overproduce, sometimes they underproduce, yeah. and then they have to scramble and find a buyer or figure out what they're gonna do with this overproduced items. Whereas with Great Lakes, the model that we built, they, in our contract, agreed to purchase everything that I could grow on that piece of land. So that made it much more sustainable for the farm. And it was also much easier for me to run it predominantly by myself and just have a few um, staff members fill in it at times of like extra work demand. So I, I want to kind of follow on this just for one second, because I, I see some parallels with cannabis that Great Lakes Brewery was willing to take anything that, that you grew. Um, but so they were your customer, right? That, that you were growing for. And so when I think about cannabis, right, the, the customer, the clientele um, that you have, uh, um, from your end products as, as a cannabis grower. Um, how did you make the decisions about what to grow? Did Great Lakes Brewery ask you to grow certain things or did you grow things that you could grow or that you were interested in? Like, what was that relationship like? And is there a parallel with cannabis or who's driving the demand or what gets grown and sold in the cannabis industry? Yeah, that was actually a really interesting part of it because it was very complex. And the model that, you know, the way the, the process worked at Pine Size Farm was that I would sit down with the head chef in the off season, so in the winter essentially, and we would talk about the spring and summer menu and what items, like it, it was a long talk <laughs> that, you know, involved several meetings and generally going out to lunch together and doing some tasting of some different 
plates that they were going to be bringing into production. And we looked at a couple of different things. So we looked at, first of all, what was the menu going to look like and what could I grow in this region effectively that could be placed on the menu. And then also what items that I like to grow, what items were easier for me to grow or I could invest less labor cost into or less input costs into. And then um, what kind of quantities could I expect to be able to balance out the other items that I wanted to grow. So what, what it ended up coming down to really, and then also how, easy, how long did those products hold their value? So for example, one thing that became kind of my cash crop at Pine Size Farm was heirloom tomatoes. And I would grow seven different, around seven different varieties of heirloom tomatoes because there was a couple of reasons why. One, it was a product that if they bought on the regular market was a pretty high dollar product. Two, it was something that I was good at growing and I, after a couple runs, got better and better at, and I could produce pretty large quantities, like in upwards of a couple hundred pounds a week or more. And then the third thing was that the reason that the price points were high for heirloom tomatoes was because they didn't transport, they didn't yeah. ship well, and they didn't have a very long shelf life. So it made sense to grow something like that because... I could deliver it to the, to the restaurant twice a week and they could put it right on the menu and we didn't have to worry about it shipping across country. Also, they tasted better fresh. So everybody's had the experience of tasting a really fresh heirloom tomato and it just tastes better than something that comes from the grocery store. Yeah. Another product that was like that was raspberries. I grew hmm. a lot of raspberries because they tasted so much better fresh like that. The, the varieties of raspberries that they grow to basically have longer storage times, don't taste as good as the varieties of raspberries that, that don't have good storage. Right. Um, so there was a taste difference, there was a transportation and storage difference, and then there it was really then just came down to what are the higher dollar items. Another thing I grew was a lot of basil, same sort of situation, you know, mm -hmm. you could get 12 or $14 a pound for it, and it, once you had a couple good rows of it, I mean, you could really cut 20, 30 pounds of that a, a week so it made sense for me to supply those higher dollar items that the, the menu called for. To get to your question about um, what cannabis has in common with that, like our, our market here in Ohio is kind of unique because it's medical only and it's only been in, in existence for about four or five years. I guess a little bit longer than that. I'm, I'm forgetting it's 2023. I know. Um, yeah. We kind of lost two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 2016, medical cannabis was legalized. It took quite a while for anybody to be producing and getting on the market. So it was really only about four, four and a half years that it's been for sale. But um, it's still very much potency driven. So our market right now is it's like a commodified THC market for the most part. And if it tests over 30%, it flies off the shelves. If it tests under 25%, it sits on shelves. Hmm. So it's dictated very much by the potency. And so we grow generally all very high potency cultivars now. On almost everything we test, tests above 25%. I think our, our THC average for this past year was 28%. So that's where we're sitting all the time is in that like 28 to 35% area. But it's also driven by what customers are asking for. So we may have some cultivars that test at 28 that just don't sell based on the terpene profile 
or based on you know the aroma or or the bud structure so we get a lot of feedback of course from our customers from the patients and then feedback from the dispensaries and that somewhat directs our choices so it's still we're, we're more in tune to those cycles and we're able to because we're essentially hand farming still do our scale for the most part we're able to run six or eight or maybe even 10 strains in a room now we do it pretty big rooms whereas the larger commercial operators are really running one or two cultivars in you know the same size room so we yeah. still do have a bigger variety of choices and um we're changing it sort of seasonally very similar to like the craft beer market you know we have some seasonals that are rotating in and out we have our staples which are always in high demand but it's very much driven by you know what's selling and what people are looking for and we kind of follow california in a way you know what's hot in california last year kind of makes its way into the demand in ohio this year that sort of interesting cycle continues mm -hmm. As California goes, so goes the nation with everything. <laughs> totally, yeah. And Michigan now is really, really affecting things in Ohio quite a bit because Michigan's market has grown so fast. Yeah. Um, I think it was over like $2 billion or something like that last wow. year. Wow. Um, so there's a super strong demand in Michigan and there's some really, you know, quality products coming out of Michigan and interesting strains. There's a lot of regional cultivars that are starting to gain a lot of attention that are influencing the Ohio market as well. And then there's even some dynamics that aren't so good, like the fact that a lot of our patients now are all going to Michigan and buying recreational cannabis up there uh -huh. is slowed down sales a bit in Ohio because we don't have uh, adult use still here. Before we jump into that conversation, what I want tell me about Galenas. So how, how big is your farm? What, yeah, you, you mentioned it's, it's medical only right now and you know, Galenas tells itself as organic and sustainable um, indoor cannabis cultivation. What does that mean? So I, I know that is a, an oxymoron to a lot of people to say indoor and sustainable in the same sentence. And there is a, a lot of implications when you're talking about growing cannabis indoors. There's large high energy costs and there's challenges to keeping your energy consumption low anytime you're growing anything indoors um and there's a whole and we'll get into that later but there's a whole lot of other challenges growing crops indoors as well but galenus to backtrack a little bit galenus is licensed in two states currently so we're licensed in ohio and michigan we have a greenhouse and outdoor um cultivation facility in Michigan that is operational, but it's a couple years behind where we're at here in Ohio. Ohio is medical only, and we have one facility in Ohio here where I work, which is indoor only. So Ohio does not allow any outdoor production. They do allow greenhouse production, but greenhouses are pretty challenging to run in Ohio due to like the low light levels that we have and the kind of the crazy environment. So we were built out indoor only here in Akron, Ohio, and we are uh, vertical grow. So we're growing on three tiers in two large rooms. So we have two large flowering rooms that are each 1500 square feet. And we're growing across three canopy levels in each of those 1500 square foot rooms. So Ohio is weird. It's regulated by 
floor uh, regulated by room size. Michigan is regulated by plant count. Of course, a lot of other states are regulated by canopy size. So because Ohio was regulated by basically square footage of the footprint of the regulated room, then we were able to kind of use it to our advantage, let's say, to grow on multiple tiers. So I kind of refer to us as the biggest little grow in Ohio because we're the tier two size, which is the smaller size grow, but we're growing across three tiers, whereas most of the tier two growers are growing still just only on one tier. So we're able to have triple the canopy of some of our smaller uh, grow competitors, but we're still substantially smaller than the tier one grows in Ohio. So the tier one grows are licensed at 25,000 square feet and the tier twos are licensed at 3,000 square feet. So, so is, is, is this a loophole that growers um, found in the regulations or was this always the intent that, you know, grow up, not out? So with Galenus, it was written into our application. So in written into our application license, we plan to be vertical. So it, it was a loophole. Without, push, without we were, pushback or anything. Like they're like, no, okay, no good use of you have the space so we was, gave you. Fully allowable under okay. the regulations. Correct. But I think some grows may not have thought of that when they wrote their application mm. or started their business model. They might may not have thought about the potential of doing so. So other tier two grows and even tier one grows have since um, moved from one tier to two or three tiers. But yeah. we started with the three tier setup initially. You know, we only ran at two tiers for the first year. And then in the third year we brought on, I mean, in the second year we brought on uh, the third tier and we've been running at three tiers now for the past almost three years. Wow. There, that must be pretty challenging to grow in three levels. It is, definitely. I mean, it, it, at first it was, it was almost frustrating because of the pace of production when you start to have people required to work on scissor lifts to get anything done. You know, so that's the biggest challenge still. We found a lot of ways to streamline things and improve efficiency and just workflow in general so that it's not quite as hard, but it is, it's always a challenge and you're dependent upon, you know, ladder scaffolding, scissor lifts to get people up in the air working on those higher tiers. We really don't use a whole lot of, we don't really do a whole lot of work on ladders. We do use like a rolling scaffold that's fairly effective for working on our second tier, but for the most part, we can only have four people working on the third tier at any one time. And that's hmm. counting both rooms because we have two scissor lifts. So we have four people that can work on the third tier. So like what we've done to really manage workflow is we try and always get the third tier work knocked out first or get it out of the way first. So if we do have, say for example, we have a down day in trimming and we can bring our trimmers in and suddenly we have 10 people that can work in the grow, in the grow rooms, we can, catch them up on the ground floor, you know, because everything's already done on the third or second tier. But there's, there's other things that we've done as well to make things more easy. Like for example, on our third tier now, we have kind of like a pulley system where we lower down bins when we're harvesting plants, instead of trying to lower a plant down one by nice. one. Nice. I was going to ask about that. You talk, we're talking about people. I wanted to know about like plants and materials too. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's always a challenge. I mean, it's, 
our our terms like our flips where we you know transplant a room into flower again are really tough weeks i mean there's a lot of heavy lifting involved because we're using soil and then that's that's really the other main differentiating thing between us and the other grows is that we are using soil most vertical grows do not use soil so from my experience most vertical grows are using something like rock wool that is light and easy to move around and they're also generally growing plants that aren't all that big so their tiers are closer together um yeah. ours are pretty far apart i think they're about seven feet apart and we're growing in fairly large volume pots like 10 to 15 gallon pots so um wow. there's a lot of heavy lifting there's a lot of moving soil around but we still stand behind soil production it's just more sustainable and it in my opinion provides a premium product so let's let's talk about that right so good segue into the sustainability <laughs> line of of conversation here so you obviously you grew a lot of plants in the ground um at pint size farms so you had that experience um and so when when you started at galenas um was galenas already in operation before you came on board or did you start with them when they started so they had set up the facility um and i came in for the first crop cycle so okay. i started were they in- already on on board with soil or did you come in they and were. say let's do soil yes, okay they were okay. already on board with soil and they were already committed to organic so it it was it was kind of a interesting way that um i was able to find my place here at Galenas, but I was teaching at Cleveland School of Cannabis, which I, I wrote their horticulture curriculum there, and I kind of rolled it out and, and taught it for a, a couple semesters. And I met a woman there that was interested in starting um, a nonprofit to help other women get into the cannabis industry. It's called Midwest Cannabis Women. So her and I founded with one additional person, um, this nonprofit organization to help women and minorities get into the cannabis industry. And when we started that organization, we started having meetings at the Cleveland School of Cannabis. And for our, I believe, second meeting, we decided to try and bring in a license holder to speak, someone that already had a cultivation license. None of them were up and running yet. And I reached out to, I don't know, five or six that I had some connection to, and none of them even responded except for one. And this was now the CEO of Galenas here. And he said, sure, yeah, I'll come in and speak. And I'm like, wow, that was easy. (laughs) And he came in and spoke at our second meeting. And I really didn't know anything about Galenas at the time. I just knew that there were tier two two grow. And the CEO's name was Jeff Corp. He came and spoke at our meeting. We had a bunch of women attend. I think we had almost maybe 180 or 100 women attend wow. our second meeting, which was really exciting. And when he said that they were going to grow in soil and that they were going to get an organic certification, that's when I made my resume because <laughs> I hadn't even made a resume <laughs> because I was pretty sure that no one was going to be organic and in soil for a few years at least. And so I hadn't even tried to apply at any cultivation facilities because I just, I didn't want to work in hydroponics. 
and I really wasn't working, interested in working in a synthetic nutrient or pesticide sort of environment. And um, it just was out of my wheelhouse, first of all, because I was had been organic for 15 years. And also it just went against a lot of like my personal, you know, ethics, I guess. And when he said those two words together, I said, okay, I'm gonna make a resume. And then I got my resume together. He had already hired a director of cultivation at the time. So they basically created a position for me as assistant director of cultivation. Nice. So then that's where I started here. After the first crop came down, the first director of cultivation left the company. And then I was able to start as director of cultivation. Which wow. Was experience. Yeah. That's awesome. So why, why organic? So, and what is organic? Can, can okay. we start there? So organic is, you know, defined by the USDA, of course, and there's a whole um, bunch of certifying conditions to be able to be classified as organic by the USDA. And, but in general, what it means is you're not using synthetic pesticides and you're not using, you know, pesticides, meaning pesticides, fungicides, insecticides, miticides, all of those things, and that you're not using synthetic nutrients. So organic production is much more old school, I guess, in the sense that you're using animal manures, you're using, um, you know, mined rock, all sort of things that people have been using for a pretty long time to grow crops. Whereas synthetic nutrients, really have only been around for, I'm not sure, 50, 100 years, maybe at the most. And um, synthetic agriculture, you know, really started to become the main form of production after World War II, I believe. So um, it's relatively new in the grand scheme of things. But synthetic pesticides, you know, as we know, have can have a lot of negative impacts on the ecosystem, on human beings, on all sort of everything alive to some degree. And personally, I had been like in the organic lifestyle for a pretty long time. So like I tried to raise my children eating healthier food, more whole foods, organic certified foods because of the concerns of the effects of pesticides essentially and or synthetic nutrients on us as human beings, but also because of the impact of it on the environment. So, you know, there's been all kinds of pesticides used over the past hundred years that have had very dramatic negative impacts on our environment, killing birds and, and all contaminating our soils with heavy metals and all sorts of other pesticide residuals that have had negative impacts on ecosystems for decades after their use was stopped. And there have been a lot of negative impacts of synthetic fertilizers, of course, with, and all fertilizers can have negative impacts, not just synthetic, but synthetic fertilizers tend to wash into waterways and have all kinds of algae bloom and different issues that can negatively impact um, all different parts of our ecosystem as well. So to me, it was important to have this commitment to a more ethical style of agriculture. And I believe that's what organic can be. It doesn't mean that that's what organic always is because there's organic farms that are causing all kinds of um, fertilizer runoffs and there's certain organic 
pesticides that can have negative impacts on ecosystems for sure and kill bees and all sorts of different negative effects on the consumer. But I always considered myself, at least in at pine size when I was a regenerative farmer there, as a, like a beyond organic farmer or a regenerative farmer, which went the next step in not only looking at things from an organic perspective, but looking at them from a perspective of what impact does this product, does this process have on the environment, on the ecosystem, and then scrutinizing it further to determine if it was something that I felt comfortable using. Like for example, neem oil is something that I don't use here in our facility because of multiple reasons, but personally I feel that the residue that it leaves have a negative impact on the predator population, which I'm releasing predator insects to offset um, pest problems. But also, it just seems kind of questionable as to what effect neem oil can have on the cannabis consumer. There's really not a lot of data and not a lot of studies on combustion of different chemicals when they're applied to um, cannabis. And so my choice is to avoid them in the case that there could be a negative effect on the consumer whenever possible. Yeah. One of the best arguments I heard from a grower, actually, I think he was my very second podcast interview, but one of the best arguments I heard from him about buying from the legal market is that it's been lab tested, right? Like we know, you know, even if there are some residuals, it's at least, right, we hope at a, at a low enough level that we think is safe for us, where if you buy from the black market, it's anything goes, right? Like you have no goes. idea what you're getting. And really, unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are still using like banned pesticides on the black market. Like there's like a, a black market for banned pesticides. <laughs> and oh my God. there's all <laughs> kinds of other products um, that aren't really what they say they are and they're may maybe not tested for efficacy or for, you know, like to see if what they're really saying on the label is in there. And there's all sorts of problems that people can run into buying different products that are particularly targeted at specifically at cannabis growers. Right. Um, mainstream agriculture, you don't see that to the same degree. I don't know if it's, I think a lot of it is just due to the, the fact that cannabis was prohibited for so long. So it was an underground market where people had to access all these products and the market, you know, suppliers learned how to cater to people that maybe didn't have much experience or much knowledge about how things were being done in the rest of agriculture. Mm -hmm. But also one thing that I learned pretty quickly once I started growing in a regulated facility was that a lot of products that we use, even in organic agriculture, have a lot of heavy metals. So cannabis being tested for heavy metals is pretty unique for me going into from food production into cannabis production and food production, I had never even really given any thought to heavy metals at all. You know, so when I moved into cannabis production and suddenly there was a big risk of failing flour for arsenic or cadmium, then it made me re-scrutinize all of the nutrients that I use, even the soil type and any type of fertilizers or soil is gonna have some degree of heavy metals in it and some have much more than others kelp for example has more arsenic than any other nutrient that i've come across really um, 
surprisingly high amounts of arsenic. Not all kelp. Um, it depends on which product you're using and maybe how that product was made. But kelp is a bioaccumulator like hemp or like cannabis. Like cannabis, yeah. Exactly. So it tends to pull certain, you know, higher levels of metals into its tissue. And then those metals can be concentrated in a kelp extract, basically, which is what a lot of fertilizers are. And when I started doing, um, you know, third-party testing of various nutrients, I was really surprised to see how dramatically higher some of the kelp extracts were than I expected. Um, rock phosphate is another known problem. Rock phosphate tends to have a lot of multiple heavy metals, but cadmium is pretty high in a lot of rock phosphate, as is arsenic. And um, it really depends, I believe, on where it's mined and all sorts of different things. But And it can be naturally occurring, or it can be a contaminant that's left over from a lot of other uh, industries. Yeah. So it's that gave me kind of a wake-up call, and it made me think, oh, my gosh, you know, how much heavy metals <laughs> have we all consumed from underground cannabis over the years because yeah. no one is checking that no one is or even our food i mean what oh, do you yeah. think about that i mean when you know um i talk to um you know indoor producers of say lettuce and culinary herbs and microgreens and stuff like that they're just shocked right that 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 cannabis growers have to run through this, you know, this litany of lab tests to prove the safety of that product when a lettuce grower, you know, eh, you know, it just kind of has to be washed a couple it times. It definitely <laughs> makes you wonder. Definitely yeah. makes you wonder. Like I've, I've heard stories of cannabis producers passing their heavy metal testing for the cannabis in an edible, but failing for the like fruit puree that Shut was up. In the yeah so Whoa. That's, yeah that's a pretty wild thing to think of i mean what does this what do you think this organic as well you know like organic fruit so i mean do you think it's just a matter of time for these regulators who the, the people who are regulating these lab tests for cannabis to kind of like scratch their chin and be like, is it time to be looking at this with our food products? Or oh, yeah. are they just completely separate? Or yeah, do we just I, not want to know, right? Do we want the veil of... <laughs> as small scale as I was with food production, honestly, I didn't tune in to a whole lot of regulations. I mean, I was not certified organic when I was producing. I mean, I maintained everything organically, but I wasn't certified. Being certified, you do have to go through a lot more compliance, of course, mm -hmm. than if you're not certified. So I've never gone through that process with um, food, but maybe there is heavy metal testing involved. Maybe there is more you know, pesticide. I'm sure there's pesticide residue testing. Right. Um, but how wide spread and how you know official and scaled up all the testing is for food I'm, I'm not aware of but it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of it it's pretty minimal it's yeah pretty, until there's an e coli outbreak and then everyone freaks right. out right yeah for sure but now like with cannabis production it was definitely 
pretty eye-opening to go through and find out, you know, what could be causing this contaminant or that contaminant or this failure or that failure. Luckily, we have a very high uh, pass rate here. It's 96%. So, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And that's not so easy for a lot of people. And so we've been lucky in that sense. But it takes a lot of work on the front end, scrutinizing any inputs, and then doing your own third-party testing. Being... Um, so we're certified kind here, which What's certified that kind is a third party organic certifier specifically for cannabis. Oh, so okay. Thank you. We are certified kind that then subjects us to a whole another round of testing. So certified kind tests for about 200 pesticides where the state tests for maybe 60 pesticides. Oh, wow. And then um, certified kind also scrutinizes all of our inputs and you know there's some things that are omri listed or maybe not omri listed but there's some things that are organic certifiable that are not allowed in certified kind production so it's like an extra layer of scrutiny that we have to go through to maintain that accreditation with certified kind so going through both the state scrutiny and the certified kind scrutiny has taught me a lot, you know, about how to grow really clean, really. And um, also how to conserve energy because certified kind also audits your energy consumption per gram. Really? Make sure that you're improving and becoming more sustainable. So there's a sustainability factor to it as well, which is interesting and important. Interesting. Do they publish that or is that specifically for you or how does that data get used? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure if they publish it, but um, I know that we have improved. Like we had a 56% increase last year in grams per kilowatt hour, which was great. And um, it's interesting to see, you know, what we can do with energy consumption and efficiencies in order to produce more with less energy, you know? So that's been helpful to me because not only does it mean that we're doing better from a sustainability standpoint, but it also means that we're saving money, you know? So exactly, exactly. And I imagine the same is true for pesticides and fertilizers. If you're not overusing pesticides, if you're not overusing fertilizers, I mean, there's costs associated with those consumables. Right. I mean, oh, yeah. yes, there's the environmental cost, but just the pragmatic cost of running your business, anything you can do to reduce your inputs is going to increase your profits. Definitely. And there, I'm glad that I worked in like regular agriculture first, because when I moved into cannabis agriculture from food production, I thought things, I was a little intimidated at first because the way like the underground market looks and the way, you know, home growers and a lot of the, the information you see from home growers, it's kind of distanced from mainstream agriculture, primarily because it was mostly done indoors, you know, so that was like the big difference. But there's a lot of products that are sold at like grow stores that I was not familiar with, you know, and I, I remember thinking like, do I, you know, starting to research these products? Like, what are they? What are people using? Why does it, there's this like mystique around these different bottled nutrients that everyone's using and what makes them so special and different from regular fertilizer? And 
what, you know, what am I going to do when I start working in this cannabis facility? I've never been a home grower. I don't know about all these nutrient lines and, you know, these different hydroponic methods and things like that. So that, that was another kind of barrier to me working in hydroponics. I'd never, Mm. but when I started here at Galenus, I realized pretty quickly that there wasn't really anything special about most of those bottle nutrients. They were the same thing, <laughs> except watered down. Right? <laughs> and they also um, were generally like lower quality than the like products that I've been using in the field. And a lot of the same things that I used in the field for food production, I'm, all, I'm using now. So I've kind of come back full circle. Like at first they were using a lot of cannabis specific nutrients here. And real quickly, I saw the price tag on all that stuff. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> even if they weren't liquid, even if they were powdered or, or micronized or whatever, I realized that that there's a cannabis really premium for the products that you're so buying, right? Yeah. yeah. Cannabis premium. And also really, there just wasn't a reason to use a lot of them. They were because <laughs> we're using like soil, you know, right. And uh, a good quality soil. And then uh, another thing I hear a lot is I hear from people that are using liquid nutrients with soil. So like they're, they're literally, they have like a drip irrigation system. That's like pumping liquid nutrients to a soil that already has a really high nutrient density. And I think that a lot of that comes also from this like hydroponic mindset that carries over into cannabis production. So a lot of people are thinking now about the potential of growing in soil, but they're still using a lot of hydroponic methods and thinking that combining the two is better. It's like they think of soil as a substrate, right? As like an inner dirt. Right. Um, as opposed to a nutrient rich soil community. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people too, they just still think that more is better. And a lot of people look at plants still and see what they think is a nutrient deficiency. And oftentimes it's a nutrient toxicity or even more common, it's just a watering problem. Right. Lack of transpiration, yeah. humidity problem, all of that. Yeah. So I think and that, that that at first took me a while to kind of like build my confidence that I knew what I was doing mm-hmm. and that a lot of the things that I'd already been doing would work as good or better than these ways that seem more hydroponic. I mean, I I love you saying this because, you know, I don't talk to a lot of people who went from field vegetable production uh, Mm -hmm. to to indoor cannabis production. But I do talk to a lot of people who went from, say, greenhouse ornamental production or greenhouse vegetable production, right, that moved into cannabis, either greenhouse or indoor. And they are very successful growers because, you know... I feel like there's sort of this legacy cannabis idea that, you know, this plant is very mysterious and magical and needs special things, you know, but when you cut, when it comes down to it, it's a green plant, right. Um, That needs the same things that other plants need, maybe in different quantities or, you know, has special things that it needs, but ultimately it's a plant. And so if you know how to grow other plants, it's going to be a very easy transition for you. I mean, of course there's a learning curve, but 
you can implement those same practices. And when it comes to greenhouse production of, you know, vegetables and ornamentals, that technology, those practices have been around for a long time. And so now you implement it to cannabis and you make a few tweaks, but ultimately you could do the same exact thing that you are doing to grow an orchid or to grow a tomato plant and apply it to the cannabis plant with a lot of success. Um, So I love hearing you say that about field agriculture as well, that you're able to implement similar practices and mindset for cannabis indoors. Definitely. I think it's really valuable to have that experience. And I think now we're seeing more and more people make that same sort of transition from, you know, regular agriculture, whether it's ornamentals or food production into cannabis, because 90% of it applies. You know, really the big differences in moving into cannabis are the testing because we haven't really thought about those things much with any other crop. So figuring out how to make sure that you're passing the testing and then also just working in indoor environments, you know, like that's, that's the big challenge is managing the indoor environment. And that was a process that was all new to me. So there was a learning curve with that as well. And it's, and it's always a challenge. It's never not a challenge, you know, but it has benefits too. I mean, it doesn't rain indoors. You're, if you, you know, apply a product that stays on the leaves a whole lot longer. Um, if you're releasing predator insects, they're going to stay contained in that area versus migrating out, you know, to other areas. Um, so there's, there's advantages to indoors, but A big component of that, of course, is getting your temperature, humidity, like leaf temperature from the lights, wind speed, all of those things dialed in basically so that it's not too stressful for the plants. Yeah. What do you think are the biggest barriers to sustainable indoor production? Is it, is it energy? Is it water? Is it, is it, you know, using rock wool instead of soil? Like what, what will get us to a sustainable indoor practice? And then I could imagine whatever your answer is for cannabis could probably be pretty similar for even vertical farms or indoor vegetable production. I I mean, energy use is obviously a huge one. Like I wish we could have sun grown in Ohio. I mean, that Mm. would, that would. You don't have a lot of sun in Ohio. We don't have, we, we have enough sun to definitely run a, a great, you know, full season crop outdoors. Yeah. It's just that we don't allow that in the regulations. Mm. That's grown, a barrier then. It seems like to yeah. just sustainable cannabis production in general. Definitely. That's a huge barrier because you could offset some of your indoor production with your outdoor season here for sure. Could that be practical? Could you run an outdoor farm for six or eight months and then run indoor for the other six to eight months and overlap them? I mean, you could still be running your indoor and be running your outdoor, but there's, there's definitely ways to make the whole business much more sustainable if you had outdoor production. Absolutely. Yeah. Even using no outdoor greenhouses as like the nursery to start the plants and then move them indoors would probably There's be so many, beneficial. so many things you could do, yeah, if you had outdoor production. But just to be able to not have to supply light, you know, that's, we have 288 fixtures here and it's a lot of energy use, even though they're all LED. Um, so energy use is a huge one, obviously. 
I, as you can probably tell, I'm not a huge fan of hydroponic production models. I'm not saying that hydroponics are necessarily not sustainable because I think there are ways to grow certain crops in hydroponic setups that can be sustainable, but the way the majority of people are doing them now is not sustainable, particularly in cannabis because of the amount of water consumption, yeah. the amount of contamination that goes into the water, the liquid nutrient, you know, buying all the liquid nutrients and then the rock wool component. Some people are using cocoa, which I would think that's probably somewhat more sustainable than rock wool, but in general, it's not. But those my... coconut trees are not very sustainable. Let's yeah. be honest, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that that energy use, the hydroponic model, those are two big challenges to the cannabis industry. There's a lot of smaller things, yeah. Like the regulations could definitely make things less challenging and more sustainable. So shaping up, basically, you know, most states, the regulations are written and there isn't much input from producers right. when they're written. So then you have to come back and try and, you know, get changes put into the law, which is always harder to change a law than to start the law from a more um, sustainable perspective in the first place. Yeah. So if regulators could be more open to changes and the process could be faster, there's a lot of things that could be done to make things more sustainable on the business side of things, whether it's for things that just aren't necessary that we do, like how we, for example, here have to mix our um, cannabis uh, waste with inert material and yeah. Yeah. things like that. You know, it's just a lot of unnecessary use of resources to do that. And there's really no one stealing people's cannabis leaves from <laughs> garbage, from what I understand, you know. And then just the delivery systems, the footprint of mm. the locations of dispensaries and the processes of how to get to all of them and the different hoops you have to jump through to get the right personnel to, you know, carry out all the different jobs. It's, there's a lot of unnecessary energy, time, resources that are directed into things that really might not be necessary yeah. in the industry. But it's, I guess, just letting, you know, having the lawmakers listen on the front end and being open to change to improve the business side of things could make it more sustainable for all the businesses. Yeah. I have a question and if we need to cut it out, that's totally okay. Cause it's a political question was, I heard that a ballot measure was proposed in this last election. I don't know. Was it for recreational? I'm not actually sure what it was for. And that because it was a big election year, uh, mm -hmm. They didn't want it on the ballot, and so they postponed it to, like, a special ballot election, so it would not be during the 2022 election. Is that true? Yeah, I don't, I can't really say whether that's true or not. I don't know. I mean, that's always a suspicion when anytime something is going to ballot that, you know, they'll try and swing the vote for a certain party by putting it on a certain ballot. 
Yeah. So I think there's always some truth behind a lot of that because in some cases they're transparent about it. Like, hey, we don't, you know, want this to go to ballot during an off year or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I I know that that measure was held up. I don't I don't think that's the technical reason why it was held up. I think okay. there was some issues with the signatures and the time window of when they could get all the signatures that came into play. But what happened behind closed doors or if, you know, there was more to trying to put it on an off year or an on year and some negotiations that happened, I personally can't speak to. Um, it's always challenging getting progressive change in Ohio due to the nature of our legislature, which is very one party dominant. And so because we, you know, like a state like Michigan, that is more of a true swing state in the sense that they have kind of an even balance of both dominant parties, things seem to have happened a whole lot faster in the past four or five years than they have in Ohio, which is just like really one sided, you know, so like, I think in our last election here in Ohio, one party won every single office. Wow. Wow. Every single one on the ballot. So because of that, it does make progressive change a lot slower. Is is public opinion also about cannabis kind of? I mean, I think public support for both adult use and medical use has been high high for a long time. So what's the hang up? Just the people who are in charge, they just don't trust it or want it or want the tax dollars from it. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I think that's the hang up. I think that's, that's pretty much the hang up. Yeah. And then people just kind of fall in line behind what, how the top leaders feel about it. You know? So I think that's mostly been the hang up. I mean, I don't expect it to last a whole lot longer because what we're seeing now is all of these people going to Michigan, you know, giving them your tax dollars. Yeah. And so I think the writing's kind of on the wall that it makes sense. And then also we see from Michigan and other States that there's not a lot of the bad things happening that people say will happen. Yeah. Like increased traffic problems and the, um, you know, just issues with, with keeping things regulated. I think that it'll happen in Ohio. I don't know if it'll happen this year or next year as far as adult use, but um, I would expect it to happen within two or three years maximum here. I also, there's, there's some other things that have been discussed a lot about changes to the medical program. So there is like another, um, I believe a Senate bill that was introduced last year that probably will get reintroduced this year that could expand the medical program and eliminate some of the issues that are holding businesses back and holding patients back from participating in the program. And I think that would be a great thing for Ohio. And I think that would have a lot more support from both parties because um, it is a very small system still here. I mean, there's only like less, I believe, than 200,000 patients in Ohio. And a lot of them now are also going to Michigan and just purchasing recreational, which isn't good for the program. It's not good for the industry. And it's kind of defeating the purpose of why the program was created to some degree. So I would hope to see a medical expansion this year. 
Okay. And I think that there's that would definitely be supported by the general population because people do want to participate in the program. And um, it has been a little cost prohibitive for some people, the way it's been structured. And it's also just been challenging. If, if the nearest dispensary is an hour from your house, yeah. you may not want to participate. Or if you're concerned that your pain medication is going to be cut off because you're getting a medical cannabis oh. recommendation, that's a big concern. Or if you're, you can't go to your regular doctor and get a recommendation, you have to go, you know, like I, people are trying to navigate the system and they're just, they're, they're not getting anywhere because they just don't know what to do. They don't know how to find a, a medical cannabis provider or they don't know, they don't have a computer and they, it's all telehealth or something like that. And there's so many things that I hear that are challenges and barriers to people just getting a medical card. Um, or they don't have one of the qualifying conditions, but they have another one that's not on the list yet, you know? So there's just, there's a lot of barriers to getting involved in the program. And I think that eliminating some of those and helping businesses to be more sustainable would be a big benefit to the population that everyone agrees with. For Streamline the, the process and make it more accessible yeah. to the people who, who need it. Definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, medical marijuana support has been extremely high in Ohio since when I was first involved in advocacy in 2014, it was already polling above 70%, I believe. Oh, wow. So now medical support is probably polling like 90 some percent. Wow recreational or adult use support I know is polling at a majority. So it's polling at least at 50 or 60% um, approval. So if the people get what they want, it will happen sooner rather than later. It's just, there's still a challenge, especially in Ohio with advancing things that the general population wants through our legislature. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not necessarily always reflective of, what the people want here. How, how do you see the cannabis industry evolve in general? I mean, this was a great discussion about Ohio. What do you think at the national or even global scale for cannabis? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's definitely a little ominous because it's Is it? Been, I mean, it's, you, it, I guess, I just I have a lot of colleagues in other states that are facing a lot of hardships right now because of the way it's developing. And so it is it's it's concerning because it's changing so fast and it's being um, it's starting to become controlled by less and less groups. You know, so there's a lot of buyouts, of course, that are happening and there's yeah. a lot of um, market shifts that are happening that point all point toward the fact that, you know, less and less companies will have larger and larger shares of the market. So that's concerning. And I mean, that happens with, with everything. And it's just happening faster, I think, in cannabis, because everything happens faster in cannabis. But also, there's a lot of dramatic price changes that have happened. So people have built businesses around a certain expectation and then they're seeing like dramatic drops in price like michigan is a perfect example where they've seen like huge decreases in the value of yeah. cannabis so that you know that's good and bad 
of course, because it can be good for the consumer. I mean, you can your dollar goes real far in Michigan now compared to where it did a year ago or two years ago. And so that can be very beneficial, but it can also be challenging when you now have to grow a plant at a much, 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 much lower cost than you did a few years ago. And what does that mean for the producers? Does that mean that they're going to cut corners, that they're, maybe they're not going to go organic certified, or maybe they're not going to go, you know, craft anymore because now they're just trying to mass produce? And where does the quality go when that happens? So there's a lot of concerns, of course, right now. I think that things will rebound like most other industries do, and they'll find a balance between um, all of those different points so that the market can you know, thrive and that industries and small and large businesses alike can both have a place and consumers can find a price point that works for them while suppliers can find a price point that works for them so that they don't have to cut corners or you know, do things in a way that affects quality. So I think it'll all balance out. It's just we saw like this, the, the green rush, and then now we're seeing these dramatic falls in prices everywhere, and it's causing a lot of concern and kind of chaos around mm-hmm. the whole industry. But also a lot of it has to do with the, legislat- the legislation. You know, so are we going to see federal legalization? You know, are we even going to see the change in banking access and, yeah. and tax you know, Do you see that as a barrier to sustainability, uh, not having oh, access yeah. to banking? Definitely, yeah. I mean, the tax side of it alone, you know, the fact that you can't deduct the normal business expenses that other businesses are mm. deducting is a huge problem. And I mean, it's like driving businesses out of business just on that alone. You know, so like the IRS is willing to take all of your taxes, but they're not willing to let you deduct normal business operating expenses is a huge problem and it's not sustainable. It's creating big, big, big issues. So, I mean, changes like that could go a long way to making the industry more sustainable. And And give uh, the small growers, give the craft growers a chance to survive all these mergers and acquisitions. Right. It's just every each and every one of them impacts the others. So like there's just going to be all kinds of movement and leveraging and changes. I mean, even just like changing the, you know, different banking and tax laws could have impacts that could be negative, you know, that could be harder on small of course. Uh, growers. If, if some of these giant corporations can refinance their loans and things like that, then they then again have an advantage over there you go yeah there's so many variables and we're all just like you know sitting back with popcorn (laughs) (laughs) where it's all gonna play out because there's a lot of theories but no one really truly knows how it's all gonna play out but it's, it's definitely exciting and interesting to see and i mean i have hope I think in the end it'll look similar to like craft brewing as far as craft cannabis and always have a place and a value. And I think that as federal regulations change, that it'll become more sustainable and there'll be more outdoor production and there'll just be, you know, a better chance of having a thriving industry. 
how it'll look and who will be controlling it and, you know, how one-sided or top-heavy it'll be might not be so great. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but I imagine myself like, okay, so I go to Akron for a visit and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to have, you know, my Budweiser with a cookies joint. I'm going to have my Great Lakes Brewery beer <laughs> with a Galena's joint, right? All right. <laughs> That's a good plan. I, there's like a tourism aspect too, I think, For right? Sure. Yeah, oh, an yeah, opportunity there. Definitely. You just got to get people to Akron. I don't know how you do that. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's, it, it's going to all work out, but it's going to yeah. go through a couple of different iterations and For there's sure. going to be highs and lows along the way, but I'm excited to see where it all ends. So Christine, let me ask you my, my last uh, question here. What do plants crave? What does cannabis wow. crave? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you can, you can answer this question for all sorts of things. Hmm. So I think there's a, there's a whole lot of things, obviously, that they crave. And it can be everything from just like the essential nutrients to the right environment. But if I had to just generalize and say one thing that I think plants crave is care or attention because and that is a little witchy and maybe that isn't true and i'm sure you could put a bunch of plants in a room and and have them all automated and run ran by you know a robot or something like that and maybe that would be enough attention i don't know but i know from my experience that having that personal connection and personal attention between the people that are growing the cultivators and the plants themselves, I think is mutually beneficial. It may be hard to quantify because, you know, how can you necessarily see what's happening or know that the impact is there? And I think there is more and more research showing how some of these connections actually work. But what I do know about plants is that the relationship between plants and people is beneficial to both from my personal experience. And there's a value to that. And I, that's part of why I like growing at the smaller scale because we're able to still have that individual connection. Even like right now, some of my cultivation technicians, some of our plants were hand watering instead of like automated watering. And they've the feedback I've gotten is that they are catching things before they become problems with the plants, whether it's like a pest or disease related, but then they're also feeling better about their job because of that mm -hmm. connection. And they're able to put more of themselves and more of their energy into the labor because they feel that connection there. So I think it's still important to have a personal connection with the plants and to give them a level of attention to keep, everything going in the right direction and to produce at the highest quality and, and level that you can. You know, one of my colleagues from uh, like food production said, he had a quote one time on Twitter and it was like, there's something about the slow relationship with plants. And I think about that a lot. There is something about the relationship you have with plants that's different than the relationship you have with people or animals or anything else because it plays out so slowly and the changes in the development are sometimes unnoticeable unless you step away for a few days and then you come back and you're like, wow, you know, like look at 
how these plans changed in three or four days. So you can't see it necessarily happening, but that slow relationship is good for humans. <laughs> I know that because it's calming and it's therapeutic and it offers like kind of like a meditative time when you're working with plants to maybe even learn some things about yourself or to regroup or reset. Like I know personally here on days, if I have days where I don't even see the plants, like I'm just on a computer all day and I go back and I see the plants for the first time, I feel physically better. Like, I don't know what it is, but like, I just, I don't know if it's the rooms, the lights, the plants, the oxygen, whatever is happening in those rooms. It seems like I physically get, you know, like I may have a headache and I may go into those rooms and my headache may kind of go away. And I don't know how to quantify that or say what's happening, but I know that the more time that I spend with the plants, kind of the healthier sometimes that I tend to feel. And so if that's the bacteria or the, you know, cannabinoids and terpenes in the air, I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it's a combination of a lot of things that when I have a more direct relationship with the plants, I feel it's like holistically better for me and for the other employees. So like I did a little uh, New Year's resolution or whatever, and it was to make sure that everyone in the business is, is engaging more directly with the plants and the different processes that they have, whether they're packaging or trimming or delivering. I think it's important for us all to have that hands-on sort of relationship with plants because of the therapeutic nature of it for us. But I think maybe there's a therapeutic nature of it for the plants as well. Like some of my technicians sing to the plants or, Do they? you know, tell them stories or whatever. And I like it. I like the witchy side of it. I like the, you know, kind of seasonal ritualistic yeah. part of it all. And it does, you know, maybe sometimes collide with the science side, but I think there's a good balance there. Of well, I mean, so much of our human history and culture is built around food and seasons, seasonality. I mean, Thanksgiving, right? The harvest, um, celebrating the harvest. Um, and, you know, it's probably no coincidence that Canada celebrates their Thanksgiving about a month earlier than we do. Or it's colder, right? Like they have to harvest sooner. So I think that all makes a lot of sense. And there's been studies that show that plants respond well to the music um, and talking to them. I mean, why why just talk to your pets? Let's talk to our plants as well. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, you know, I think it's so interesting how many people, I think what you're saying is a big reason why you find more, more growers or potential growers kind of gravita gravitating towards cannabis cultivation as opposed to vertical farming or, you know, this other indoor production of um of say vegetables and fruits uh mm -hmm. you know kind of same idea you're in this artificial lit environment right you're not outside in nature but it's like there's almost more of a willingness to do it with cannabis and these other facilities mm -hmm. that are very heavily automated or trying to be heavily automated so there's less plant touching um and uh so i you know i kind of feel like there's something there that one of the reasons you want to be growing these plants is because you want to have the interaction with the plants. But once you sort of sterilize it and you let the robots sing to the plants and harvest and do the transplanting, all you are at that point is a data scientist, right? Which 
people are data scientists. They like doing right. that. But if you're looking for growers and people to, um, you know, be paying attention to how the plant is responding to that data, eh, it's sort of inert in a way. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> cannabis is cool because, I mean, it is kind of a magical plant. It creates these chemical compounds that interact with receptors in human beings' brains. Yeah, so, it's true. I mean, there's definitely something going on there that this plant was designed to have this sort of connection with animals. This human connection, human yeah. Totally. So, and it's, and it's also cool because it does, you know, it's a, it's a plant that you grow bigger. It's not like growing microgreens or something like that. Right. So you naturally can't grow as many of them. So you get to have a little bit, even if you're like right now we have 2000 plants in flower. I mean, it's a lot of plants. We're definitely not having a personal relationship with each of them, but we, at some point in the cycle are spending some time with each and every one of them, Yeah. you know, whereas with microgreens, it's really pretty hands off for the most part and stuff like that. But it, it's, it's an interesting plant. It has a, a huge history of its relationship with human beings. Human beings have dispersed it all over the world and it's grown in this like evolutionary relationship for a long time. So I know there's downsides to having a lot of interactions with plants, like spreading pests around or disease or things like that. But to me, I still feel like the value of having the relationship outweighs any of the negative impacts and is important to just the sustainability of, of the industry. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a powerful relationship and it leads us to make a lot of choices and do a lot of things to, you know, continue to be able to have that relationship. So yeah, it's pretty cool. I like that. All right, Christine. Well, you're not quite done yet. So um, I'm going to, I have a list of rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, so just answer in one word or one sentence. Of course, if you want to expand on anything, please do, but they're meant to be sort of short and sweet. Okay. Gotcha. All right. All right. Are plants introverts or extroverts? I think they're extroverts. Yeah. Okay. Can cannabis create a more sustainable world? Yes. Definitely. Okay. What has the cannabis plant taught you? Trust myself. Ooh, I like that one. If you could ask researchers to study one thing about cannabis cultivation, what would it be? Tough one. Wow, that's a really tough one. I guess the thing that I'm most interested in is finding out the relationship that cannabis has with various microbes. Microbes. Mm -hmm. Okay. In the soil, I'm assuming. In the soil, on the leaves, you know, there's all okay. kinds of places that they have relationships with them. But, you know, finding out which ones have valuable relationships with cannabis is something I'm really interested in right now. Yeah. Yeah, we, we tend to focus on the bad ones, not the good ones necessarily. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I'm kind yeah. of meaning more of the good ones. Yeah. Have you ever brewed beer with cannabis? I've never even brewed beer. So that's okay. my husband. Uh, he's a brewer. Yeah, has he? So, he no, he has not actually. No, but he has, he's not much of a home brewer. So he's a commercial brewer. Okay, he works for Great Lakes actually, and um, so they have not there yet ever brewed beer with cannabis. But I think it's something that they're actively researching. 
Okay. <laughs> so if you had to pick a vegetable, fruit, or herb to make a flavored beer, what would you choose? Oh, that would definitely be quince. Really? <laughs> yeah. Does it make a sweet beer? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's ever been brewed into a beer. I'm sure it probably has because it's an awesome fruit, but there was a quince tree in the farm, in the garden, the ornamental garden next to my farm. It's, it's not there anymore, unfortunately, but it was really old. And every year, no one wanted the quince because no one knew what to do with them. So I got all of them, which was awesome. And it was, it was quite a lot. It would usually be like 30 pounds or so. And I would make quince jelly, quince pie, quince apple pie, quince syrup, everything that I could possibly extract into quince the flavor out of and put it into something I was doing because mm. it is just one of the most exquisite flavors. If you've ever had quince jelly. I have. Yeah. Syrup, yeah. I just, I love the flavor of that. So huh. that's one of my favorites. All right. Well, I think, well, quince uh, <laughs> for beer, it sounds like, and for everything else, you really don't hear a lot about quince products. You don't hear a lot all. about it. No. Interesting. Interesting an undervalued, underappreciated so. fruit. I just, strangely enough, I just bought some quince at the grocery store. I had Thanksgiving time and I baked up apple pie and I put just one quince, cut up the quince in it. And it was the best apple pie I ever had. So I don't even know what a quince looks like. <laughs> it, <laughs> looks like big, name. <laughs> it looks like a big yellow pear that is very, very hard and you can't bite into it. It's so okay. hard. You really have to cook it for okay. to be able to eat it for the most part. It does soften up eventually, but it's not like a fruit that you just pull off the tree and you eat it. You gotta So did it, it give it like, like your apple pie a crunchy texture or did you cook it down enough that it was soft like it apple? Gave it, a little, it had a it had a little crunch to it, a little more uh, I guess, you know, firmness to it than maybe the apple pieces. But it just gives it, it, it's kind of like a cross between an apple and a pear. And then it almost has a little bit of like an exotic floral sort mm. of flavor side to it. So it's just, I can't really describe what it did for it, but it just gave it that extra something special. Yeah. Okay. It's like, kind of, it's almost like an aromatic, but then it also just has like a, a sour, sweet flavor that is just very unique and very delicate, I guess. Really all right, all right, listeners. Where your well, your homework is to go and find yourself some quince and try it and let us know how you like it. You don't eat it raw. Okay. <laughs> well, Christine, thank you so much um, for the conversation. We did really cover a lot of topics, and and I appreciate everything that you are doing for the earth um, and for the soils. Uh, and for trying to make indoor cannabis production more more sustainable. Awesome. Thank you. And yeah. thank you for having me and spending all this time talking about sustainability and cannabis. Absolutely. And for all you do for yeah. all of our facilities everywhere else to make them more efficient. From thank HVAC you. Side. <laughs> awesome. We're trying. We're trying. And things are changing all the time also with that technology and science so um we're also trying to keep up with it and and provide the best and greatest solutions so um awesome. yeah all right christine well um have a great rest of your day go visit your plants 
I am going to. <laughs> I haven't seen them yet today. Awesome. Thanks. Oh, it was great to have you. Super right. fun. Awesome. Ditto. Keep me All posted right. on when things come out or whatever with the episode. So we absolutely will. Awesome. All right. Thanks. All right. Cool. Thanks for your time. You have too. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.